Hey, Don. Good morning, Zach. This week, you sent me an article about the end of civilization. There is a researcher out there named Peter Turchin, who has come out with a very interesting prediction, and that things in America, maybe even in the world, are going to get a lot worse. And here is the best paragraph I read. Cities on fire, elected leaders endorsing violence, homicides surging. To a normal American, these are apocalyptic signs. To Peter Turchin, they indicate that his models, which incorporate thousands of years of data about human history, are working. He's been warning for a decade that a few key social and political trends portend an age of discord, civil unrest, and carnage worse than Americans have experienced. In 2010, he predicted that the unrest would get serious around 2020 and that it wouldn't let up until those social and political trends reversed. Havoc at the level of the late 1960s and early 70s is the best case scenario. All out civil war is the worst. The fundamental problems, he says, are a dark triad of social maladies, a bloated elite class with too few elite jobs to go around, declining living standards among the general population, and a government that can't cover its financial positions. And Don, it's just a really interesting article. It's kind of a summary of Peter Turchin's research, what he did before he was looking at the end of civilizations. And then it goes into some of the details about why he thinks America is on the verge of some really bad stuff. What did you think? I thought it was fascinating in that he's got mathematical data that he's used and compared to historical events to predict what's happening in the future. And it certainly seems at the moment that the end is upon us. I couldn't decide how much I wanted to take this article seriously or not. Definitely 2020 is a year to remember and a year to forget. And a lot of those things that he sort of predicts definitely happen now. What's interesting is in 2010, he has research where he was saying this was coming. In the essay or the article in general, he talks about these 50-year cycles of violence. And if you go back and look at these data points in the 1870s, 1920s, 1970s, there were these kind of years of violence and of riots and stuff like that. And 2020 is kind of the next era of the 50-year cycle of violence, as he was saying. And it is kind of interesting that his research kind of matches up with the data points that he gave. Oh, yeah. And he's a very accomplished researcher in the world of pine beetles and then just got tired of looking at pine beetles and want to look at humans and how humans interact. And these are interesting cycles, you know, 1920s, pre-Great Depression, upheaval there, income inequality, billionaires. And then you have the 70s with the riots that are coming out of the 60s. There's the movement for women's rights. There is Watergate. And then leading to the 2020s with what we have, which is African-Americans being treated poorly by the police, by Donald Trump. We have a very divided political culture. I mean, it's very interesting that these events come in 50-year periods. I don't know if we're cherry picking, but it seems to make sense. Right. And that's what's interesting. I wish the article would go into exactly what specifically is his data points. The one critique I have is that they keep saying nobody would understand it if we actually talked about how his research works. It's heavily made up of mathematical modules and stuff like that. But bottom line is he's got all these data points. He says that he's been looking back at human history for 10,000 years and he just sees these trends. Now, 
historians in general, our textbooks that we teach students show revolutions and when human inequality gets bad, people tend to revolt against their governments. But he seems to have drilled down even more and he seems to at least have some credibility in that 10 years ago he was calling and saying this was going to happen. He also started to advocate having his own new sort of field of study called cliodynamics, which is the search for general principles, explaining the function and dynamics of historical societies. That's something kind of new, whereas historians seem to be more interested in looking at primary sources and looking at artifacts and trying to weave together these very complicated stories or explaining why the stories happen and why they cause others. His is just like, let's look for data points and let's start to match it together and look for trends, a lot like a scientist would do studying insects like this guy did. Well, I think it's really interesting that he is focused on the future and predicting the future. That's not what historians do. Historians take a deep dive into the past. I mean, how many Abraham Lincoln biographies are there? I know you were telling me that you were ready to read your third. I've read one. I don't have room for that much more, but I know that there's limitless ones. And historians aren't very excited about his ideas, but it's more of the mathematical model that we've been looking at and hearing about that has revolutionized sports with data and many other things. And why not? I want to know what's going on. I know what's going on in 2020. I want to know what's going on in the near future. And I'm not ready to wait till 2060 because I'm not sure I'm going to see 2060. You know, that's a good point. One of the things I notice about just teaching history to middle schoolers or even to high schoolers is that we talk a lot about the past, like Abraham Lincoln and all the other events. And usually we try to hope that students are going to look at this past to quote unquote, not make history repeat itself, right? We think that they're gonna think deeply about these and then apply these lessons that we're kind of teaching sort of indirectly. But you're right, there really is not a lot of future predicting with students. We don't ask students to think about where do you think this is gonna go? And it does make this guy's research really interesting. And if I think about it, cable news, CNBC, all of this is people getting up talking about kind of the future, right? Oh my gosh, if President Trump does this, then this is what the future is going to be like. Or if President Biden does this, then this is going to be the future. Or Amazon, if it does this, this is where the stock's going to go. And Americans love forecasting, right? Even if it's bad, we still go into our weather apps and just watch it and be like, oh my God, tomorrow's going to be rain. How is that going to affect us? It is kind of interesting to see somebody make these grand sweeping gestures about where humans are going. Yeah, and it seems if you have the mathematical background, you can get away with it with some legitimacy. And by the way, nobody knows his math, and I'm not sure anybody's checking it, but we believe him because he can say math. Whereas somebody on Fox News or CNBC hollering from the hilltop that the <laughs> hordes are at the gates isn't necessarily have the same background or legitimacy. Nevertheless, we like the predictions. They're kind of interesting. That's what everybody wants to do. Bill Simmons just did his over-under for basketball season for the NBA. Who's going to have more wins or less? We love predicting the future. Whether or not it comes through or comes true is faintly accountable, if accountable at all. Mostly it's just the idea and the fun of predicting what's going to happen. That's a good point. In fact, I was writing down Nate Silver, who runs the 538 website. And of course, he's famous now for predicting elections. And he's really kind of famous for, instead of just reading one presidential poll, he was like, look, I think we need to take all of these polls and combine all of these data points to really make the most accurate projections. 
And I can remember around 2008, 2012, when he kind of came on the scene, all of the old guys, like your boy, George Will, were like laughing at this guy. He doesn't get it. He doesn't just go with his gut and he uses math. And it's really hard to understand again. And then in one of those elections, he called it within almost perfection of all of the electoral votes. And people said, oh, my God. Maybe there really is something to using these sorts of methods to predict the future. And then I remember back in 2016, he gave Donald Trump a better chance of winning than other people. His poll still said that Hillary Clinton was going to win, but a lot of people got mad at him and said he was irresponsible for even saying Trump had a better chance. And lo and behold, Trump won a very surprising victory in that election. And all of a sudden, it kind of boosted the idea that data can really matter. And I think that's kind of what this guy is doing, isn't it? Yeah, he's doing so with mathematical models where he can show that this is going to happen. Now, I want to know if you just backwards facing or forward facing, you still have the same predictability. So if you look at the past, that doesn't mean the past is always the same. So much has changed in the last 20 years. And that's what the presidential polls didn't account for in 2016. The internet changed, people have cell phones, people don't have landlines, people may not answer the pollsters. Households are different and they react to news differently and then the news itself comes differently. And that's what the polls got wrong in 2016. I don't know if this guy's got all those things figured out for humans. I mean, his background's pine beetles. Pine beetles don't care about technology and they're very, they probably are very good at doing whatever pine beetles do, but they're not the same as humans. Right. And at the same time, why can't somebody who's studied insects their whole life take a look at human societies and give a different spin, right? To me, I also was kind of thinking about Moneyball and that the general consensus is this is how everybody thinks. And then somebody comes out of nowhere and sees all the same data points or looks at something and just is like, look, you're looking at the wrong data points. You need to be looking at this instead, because this is what I'm seeing. And I do think that's one of those just ideas that maybe we don't know much about human societies, or maybe we really need to rethink what we're doing. As you said, we're always obsessed with how did Abraham Lincoln handle the Gettysburg Address? And yet that happened a long time ago. Why aren't we thinking more about the future and what could be happening to us? And this guy's there. I just thought it was a fascinating article when you look at his predictions. And sadly, his predictions are kind of bleak, Don. What did you think about these predictions? I thought it was a little sad, a little upsetting. Um, It's interesting in that it kind of parallels the end of Rome in that the country goes into debt, the poor population's unhappy, you try to entertain them with bread and circuses or giveaways, and then eventually you run out of money and it all collapses. I thought that was kind of interesting. What was most interesting is we've talked before about revolution, and you've brought up the French Revolution and the hordes at the gates. And I've argued that they're so amused with the new technology that they're not actually going to up, rise up. But his argument is that there's not enough spots for all the elite people. And the elite people that don't get those spots because they come from non-elite backgrounds or whatever are going to lead the uprising against the traditional elite. And they give the example of Steve Bannon, who came from a poorer family, was elite, has some money, but reached out to the population, the general public, the downtrodden people of Southern Ohio, West Virginia, lower income white people to get his political power to rise up. And for a while, he had a lot of power. We forget that. 
I think what you just brought up is maybe the most interesting part of this entire article. I was writing down whenever I teach the fall of Rome or fall of civilizations, we always have these big categories, bad leaders, weakened militaries, economic issues, environmental issues, social change and problems. And then we kind of look at specific examples in Rome or other civilizations that ended up collapsing. I've never really heard this argument of an overproduction of elites. But the idea is we have so many educated people, so many rich people, and not enough things for them to do to the point where they just kind of start nitpicking at each other. They start fighting each other. They get bored. They don't feel like they're being respected in society. And they almost begin counterproductive measures against other elites or against society in order to find something for them to do. They brought up the example of just like, look, in the Saudi royal family, every year there's new Saudi royals that are born. But only one of them kind of gets to be the chief decision maker, right? So what does everybody do? And I guess they can go out and spend lots of the Saudi royal money and stuff like that, but they don't really have a job. And some of them have turned in fighting amongst each other, right? And if you just think about how our society is shaped, all we do is we tell people, you got to go to college. That's going to bring you happiness for your future. That's going to bring you economic well-being for your future. And all we've started to examine in American society over the last 10 to 15 years is, hey, I went to college. I racked up a bunch of debt. I can't really get the job I want. I'm not really happy in terms of where I'm at with my life. And that seems to be a major trend we're hearing among millennials. Do you think there's a lot of, I guess, truth in this idea of an overproduction of elite? Do we have too many? I have a tough time believing this because I know there's a lot of open jobs. We have a lot of open jobs in STEM in STEM jobs. We have a lot of open jobs in other places. Can't hire enough people to work in many, um, many worlds or many um, industries. And so I have a tough time. But what they want is they want the cush job that pays well, that does not require a tremendous amount of work. Being like, a, I'm imagining an ad executive in Mad Men. And that's what they seem to want to be. Now, how did the Europeans deal with this when this is a problem in the uh, 1400, 1500, Zach? Did they send them off to new colonies and stuff like that? Yeah, the primal grancher is the idea that the firstborn son gets all the stuff because otherwise you end up subdividing your estate and your estate loses power over time. So you have your firstborn son gets all the stuff, the daughters get married off and treated poorly, and then the secondborn and thirdborn sons, what do they do? They go off to explore the world. They have money, but not a ton of money, and they don't have land. Where do they go? What do we do with them? And yes, they explore the developing world, probably treating native populations poorly. Weren't these the Vikings because they didn't have a spot of their own, so they went off to pillage? Isn't that what what the historical solution is? No, it is. And you could argue that's that was the motivating factor for the Vikings. I believe Alexander Hamilton's father actually came over from Europe and was in a similar situation where he had to go and kind of strike it on his own. Your wife loves Vikings. So whenever I'm talking to her, she talks about how all these Vikings are over destroying monasteries and trying to find their own land and trade goods and stuff like that. It makes sense. And yet, obviously, with most of the world explored, I'm sure a lot of our elites don't really want to head over to Antarctica to set up a new colony. Your boy Elon Musk there hasn't gotten us a colony on Mars or on the moon yet. So we've got people just kind of sniping at each other. And I guess, you know, in a way, it's like, yes, we do have job openings in the STEM fields. But I was thinking about it depends on your definition of elites. But if you go with the definition of somebody with just 
I don't know, an advanced degree or a degree in general. Think about society where, we, again, we tell a lot of people in high school, go to college. All of your answers are once you go to college and once you get a degree. We got a lot of dance majors, Don, a lot of poetry majors, a lot of general studies majors. And yes, those are people that sat in college for four years. And I'm sure they did get somewhat educated. But I don't know if their skills are exactly translating to society. And doesn't that lead to discontent? Doesn't that lead to college debt and people just sort of not happy? Yes. And I think it hints at the question that is often asked, which is, will our children be better off than we were? Uh, Our parents are better off than their parents. So my dad's mom grew up in a house without a bathroom. There was a, they'd go to an outhouse down the street where they could get fresh water near there. Like that was her life. That's rough. And then my dad grew up in Philadelphia with fairly low income housing. Then he went to college. He got his PhD. He's done much better than his parents. Now, will I do better than them? That's a great question. And a larger, will our generation or the following generation, the millennials, will they do better than their parents? And I think if not, that's where the upset is. The upset is I went to college because my parents told me if I went to college, I'd be great because they went to college and they were great. And so now I'm done with college and where's this corporate job that'll take care of me cradle to grave? Where is this GE thing where I just go there and make good money and have this house and happiness? Or is it just that the millennials have higher aspirations? They want more. I'm not sure, but there's a lot of them floating around out there. Can't we get them to join the military? We need good leaders there. That's a, that's a very good point. But as you said, I guess there's a cush thing. I think there's a status thing to it as well. In society, you and I have talked about this on other podcasts. Again, we respect the person with the four-year degree, but society doesn't really look at a plumber or an electrician, somebody with a real skill that's very handy in society, in the same way. And I wonder if that also goes into this sort of idea of the elites. One thing I was writing down is the rise in PhDs in society. So many people now have PhDs compared to years ago. PhDs are very hard to get. And I'm amazed though, when I see people that have a PhD next to their name, when I don't necessarily know if they need to have it for the job that they're doing. It's not that it doesn't say that this person isn't brilliant and that they don't work hard and that they don't like research, but We have a lot of adjunct professors now, I've noticed, on college campuses. Adjuncts seem to do a lot of the teaching, whereas your tenured PhDs are off doing the research, right? I've got to assume that's a lot of discontent for an adjunct if for years they've been trying to get in. They brought up in in the article that, like, there's lots of people that graduate now with MBAs, with law degrees, with advanced degrees, and there might only be one law firm or one prestigious investment bank that's only hiring a select limited number of positions. And probably if you didn't get one of those advanced degrees at an Ivy League school, you're probably going to be canceled out. Once again, you could just kind of see where if people feel like, man, I worked hard, I got what they told me to get, and yet I'm not getting the kind of advancement that I feel like I should get, I could see where that could become an issue slowly over time. Well, and the thing with college professors, well, first of all, PhDs are harder now than they used to be. They require more research. They require more investment and more time. So I found that out recently and I was really surprised. Secondly, adjunct professors do a lot of the teaching for like a tenth of money. And tenured professors last forever. That's what this guy is. The author is. He's a tenured professor. He did lots of research in pine beetles, became a tenured professor, and then said, I don't want to touch pine beetles ever again. Well, the college invested in him because he is the foremost scholar on this, and he can bring acclaim and interest and um, more study and more grant dollars to study this. 
but he doesn't want to do it. And there's nothing they can do about it because once you're a tenured professor, you're bulletproof. And so you can just hang out and do whatever you want and have an office there forever. But those are very expensive positions and they just hang on forever. Colleges don't want to provide that opportunity because it's expensive. So if you want to be a tenured professor, that's hard. Not many options are open to you. Right. And I guess my question would be is, again, it depends on what your definition of elite is. Not all elites are wealthy and can just kind of live off their money. And it doesn't really matter if they have, you know, gainful employment or not. And I guess it's just interesting to think about how that could trickle down into society. If you're not taking care of your elites, then how does that eventually get to a decline in living standards? Because as you said, everybody can kind of afford Netflix and a cheap tablet to watch things. And I don't know if we're necessarily seeing a decline in living standards, although you could say more people than ever are struggling to be food secure in their homes? And therefore, is it possible that we are seeing a general decline in living standards across society on top of the fact that you've got discontent among your elites who can't find a meaningful position in this world? Well, the article said specifically that people that are middle, low income are comparing them, the people that they compare themselves with are getting richer. And that's the problem. It's not that their living standards getting worse. It's that the people that they're comparing themselves with are better. Now, I think with current technology, we're just constantly led to compare ourselves. I know when I get to the bottom of an article in some newspaper, there's often clickbait at the bottom. And the clickbait is, look at these really wealthy people or these really, really attractive people. And I'm not interested in clicking on them, but I know it's there. And I'm saying, wow, they're better looking than me or they're wealthier than me. Okay, does that make people feel deprived? Are we just more aware of the alternatives? Because when I grew up, it was in middle class, upper middle class, really, Ann Arbor, and everybody was a lot like us. We didn't know any really wealthy people, and we didn't really care. And it just was assumed, and we didn't feel deprived because everybody's living more or less like us. Or is it just that we're more aware? Yeah, that's a really good point. We've talked a lot about Facebook envy on this podcast in terms of people just continue to look at, you know, people's Instagrams and and not be happy because they feel like somebody else is having so much fun and their life just doesn't feel like that. And I like your point about growing up. I remember everybody that I hung out with kind of had a lifestyle that seemed pretty much like mine. And then I remember I got to high school and like I, I went to the forbidden east side of Traverse City and I met some kids whose parents were quite wealthy and had quite large homes. And I was like, oh, like, I guess there's a different world than the one that I've been living in. And I could see where that envy could be all over the place, especially now where you're hit with it all the time. And one of the things I I kind of wondered about in terms of these sort of elite sniping back and forth is besides just the images on the internet where people see things, how much do you think cable news plays into this, this hyper-partisan politics that we live in where people get on and they just start trashing other Americans, not just for their opinions about marginal tax rates, but they take personal shots at each other now and they call each other un-American. They call each other treasonous half the time. And do you think that also can stir the pot and also lead to this kind of discontentment? Well, that's one level of unhappiness with others and breeding discontent. But then there's the Fox News level, there's the Newsmax level, and then there is the whomever's on Twitter or social media, which is even more extreme. And I'm sure this is true on the liberal side as well. I just don't consume it very much. And so as people are looking around, they have this wealth of information about why things are terrible and why you should be upset. And that's true for people in every angle. 
And it's interesting because there's just fuel all over the place for your rage. And maybe that's the rage that's leading to the discontent. But that doesn't explain why it happens every 50 years, because that certainly wasn't the case in 1970 when it was Walter Cronkite telling everybody the same facts. And it wasn't the same in 1920 when probably a lot of people couldn't read and it was coming out in newspapers. That's true. And basically, he says, look, like this continues until those social and political trends are reversed. And I guess my question is, what exactly does that mean? How do you reverse these trends? And is it one of these things where the riots happen, enough change happens in society, or there's enough money that starts to circle around that people start to feel a little bit better about their options? And then all of a sudden, there's kind of this stagnant period or a period where everything kind of rests and, and people are allowed to build again until it builds up. Because he just seems to think this is just a regular cycle. I guess my question is, do you think what happened this year will reverse anything? Do you think a, a new president? Do you think working through the pandemic? Do you think the fact that, you know, maybe more voices were heard in the election can reverse this? Or do you see a really bad 2021 through maybe 2025? And when you talk about presidents, our, I had a good friend named Steve Conklin, who is a wise, wise man, and said that every president was the solution to the previous president. So and we've talked about this on the podcast before. So I think Joe Biden is a more calmer influence. Um, certainly Donald Trump was fueling this fire of partisanship. I think Joe Biden's trying to try the opposite. I don't know if he'll succeed. But I wonder if there's unifying experiences. It's not something that's changed, but a unifying experience happens that brings people together. Sure, people were at their thro each other's throats in the 1920s, and the Gatsby takes us through this tremendous income inequality. Then there's World War II, where everybody's fighting side by side in the trench, regardless of, or not the trench, but fighting side by side in the Pacific or in Germany. And they are from all different backgrounds, all different races, and that brings people together. Well, I guess the races were divided. Whatever. The point is that there's a unifying experience. Maybe September 11th was the unifying experience that brought Americans together. What is the unifying experience? I hope it's not war. Feels like it's war. It might be. I do wonder if the pandemic of kind of the shared suffering, the shared experience of this thing will be something that we will be talking about for a long time. Also, something that has maybe brought some people together because they understand kind of how hard this has been for everybody. And maybe that's the experience that maybe sort of, you know, takes you off the cycle. But again, that means you also have to believe in this cycle. And you also have to believe that things are going to get worse, that America's headed for this downfall. And you mentioned the word clickbait. And the first thing I thought of when I read this article is, is this article just clickbait? Are there just that many Atlantic readers who feel just dark about the world right now and all the things that this article will fit perfectly in their mindset. This article will help sell. Here's a guy who's out there on his own making these big predictions. And if you're already in a bad headspace about the future of humanity, doesn't this thing just sit there perfectly for you? And I just wondered, you know, maybe there's not a whole lot to this guy. Yeah, I thought about the cherry picking aspect a little bit as well. Is this just something that there's people are going to be interested in? But isn't that what all historians do? If I'm a historian and I'm really interested in something that nobody else is interested in, am I writing the book or am I trying to find something that people are interested in? So perhaps, yes, he's picking something out. Perhaps the writer of the article is trying to find somebody that's saying something interesting. And he found this, this uh, professor. But I think all historians and writers are trying to find something that other people are interested in. They're not just writing about what interests them, are they? 
That's true. During the last election cycle, I felt like every week they would interview another pollster or another political scientist, somebody you'd never heard of. I remember two years before the election, there was this woman that Politico interviewed, and she was like, the Democrats are going to win, Trump will lose. This is already over. It was like, whoa. And you can see already where like that headline would have gotten a lot of people to click because here's somebody making a large statement almost two years before the election. And yet I remember about a month and a half before the election, there was another guy in the Wall Street Journal. I think you might've sent me the article where he was like, Trump's won this thing already. It's over. And you start to realize that the stakes for making a big claim are kind of high and kind of low. If either of these people are wrong, they're just forgotten and they just kind of go back to wherever they were and nobody ever thinks about them again. But if they're correct, that means book deals. That means speaking gigs. All of a sudden, we look at them as if they're like Merlin the wizard who can see the future. You see like what happened to Nate Silver, right? He was right. And now he's got a booming business, a booming website, and it's going great. Now you could also say, well, he's got the math and the formulas to support him, but it doesn't seem like it's that bad to just go out there and make a bunch of crazy predictions and hope one that sticks, right? If this guy's correct, if, if America's on the downfall, then I guess uh, people are going to keep reading his work, right? Although I guess they won't be reading it in America. They'll be reading it in another country or whatever civilization appears next. Yes, yeah. They'll be reading it then and hoping that it went well. That's the thing. You have to have this inherent faith in the civilization. Otherwise, why not? Make, why make the prediction? So we have to have faith in our civilization, faith, faith in our government, and let's make some predictions. Yes. No, that's true. His research is also kind of interesting in that, again, he uses these data points. And the article, I wish it would go more into it, talks about how like ancient societies start to see moralizing gods, gods that punish people or tell people they're bad when they've made mistakes, only when societies get complex. Before then, you just kind of have these gods that are sort of faceless and don't really have personalities. And I thought that was sort of an interesting thing that he comes up with. He also had this interesting idea, and you said it just a little bit earlier, about war. And he said mm. that complex societies come through war because they're the ones that destroy the simpler societies. Did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I think it's probably accurate that complex societies win wars. Well, usually democracies don't go to war with other democracies. But when there is war, the complex ones are likely to win, probably because they've used comparative advantage and they have farmers farming and they have steel workers making steel and they have more resources and wealth, which allows them more resources to win. So yeah, they probably win and the, to the victor goes the spoils. And that's what's led to the complex societies thriving. And the ones that have been defeated are simpler. I feel like I'm demeaning them. Maybe it's simple, is simple bad? Maybe they're just small utopian societies. And it's a tragedy that the complex win because the simpler societies are better. That's a really good point. You know, I teach ancient civilizations. And what you see is that your groups of hunter-gatherers into your earliest farming societies probably were living at a level of much more equality, of much more group decision think. They had smaller numbers of people, so it was much easier to operate like that. And then the societies that get more complex, that have more social class and wealth inequality, that have leaders at the top of this, they're the ones that were able to basically go over and crush these simple places. But you could say the simple places, maybe we're living in a way that we would all have a more respect for and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't 
think I truly understand the history of civilizations well enough to comment on it too much, but I don't think the winners are always the better people. That's true. The winners are just the ones that get to write history and talk about how great they were and what barbarous uh, animals their enemies were, right? That's right. Yeah. And to the uh, the victors write the history, the victors write the uh, have the spoils and they're the society that keeps going. But in this case, unless you're conquering more areas and having more places for people to grow, then eventually you just have too many wealthy people that don't have anywhere to go, which leads to a falling of the society. Ugh, does that mean we have to expand? Should we send our people overseas? When I was in Japan, a lot of the workers spent time overseas at Japanese factories in America. Shouldn't we send our people overseas to oversee some American enterprise? Would that be better? Can we give them jobs like that? So a new age of imperialism, you're saying? Oh, that's got a bad ring to it. You know, he brings up this point about democracy that I thought was interesting. And he was like, look, democracy is all about war. And that it was not because of the ideals of democracy, of the idea that everybody gets to vote and everybody's voice matters, but instead democracies were these complex societies that were able to crush some of the simpler ones. And one of his points was that democracies work because of the memory of war and the memory of tragedy, the memory of destruction. And therefore there's kind of a hypervigilance that democracy has towards being destroyed that allows them to constantly keep building up their military. And I kind of could fit that right into America with our military industrial complex and the fact that we are always trying to keep our big stick and always trying to be vigilant towards enemies. Did you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. It fits in well with the philosophy. I mean, it's federal law that America has to have, I think, six aircraft carrier groups ready to go, which is five more than the rest of the world or the next biggest nation in the rest of the world. We are incredibly overabundant in our military spending, but it fits with the idea of this article that if you're a democracy, you've got to be ready to take over other places or protect yourself because the uh, warriors are coming at our, at our borders. That said, despite the fact that many people are concerned about our borders, seems like from this article, the idea is that the dangers come from within. Right. And that's even more interesting. That would kind of go in that social problems. But America bickering at herself, right? As you said, not enough of our elites are going into the military to possibly lead it, to possibly add value to what could be doing. And you're right. Everybody in our country seems to still have a high amount of respect for the military, but it's all of our leaders constantly trashing each other, right? It's the fact that people now see, you know, see a set of facts and come up with totally different conclusions or the fact that they use their own sets of facts to make their decisions. I guess there's some truth to kind of what he was saying. And I guess something else that was interesting about democracies was that after the Berlin Wall fell, there were some historians that called it the end of history, right? History had finally reached its conclusion after 10,000 years of humans living in farming societies. We finally got the idea that a liberal democracy is the end state of all history and that there's no, there's no better way to live for humans. But this guy's like, no, look, democracy is just another phase this is just a never-ending loop of boom and bust for humans and that democracy will probably also be going away and as you're suggesting does it go away because our elites are too bored and more interested in fighting and bickering with each other than trying to respect the process of democracy 
That could be the case, but it seems like, especially recently, all the elites turn 100% of their muscle to turning out the people to vote and that they're using their wealth, their time, wealth in the form of Michael Bloomberg reenfranchising Florida voters and other people donating to presidential elections to try to promote their causes and their beliefs. So they're almost turning inwards to try and motivate the people. So in a sense, they care about them, or at least they care about their votes. And yet... I would say never before in American history have we seen so many people doubting the conclusion of this election, right? We have our current president who is still raising red flags and still trying to find a legal challenge that will let him maybe overturn it. We're seeing members of Congress still fighting the idea that Joe Biden won the election. And we're seeing, you know, a decent part of our population still questioning the whole thing as well. And I just wonder, is this the kind of thing that he's pointing to? Is there's enough elites who are not just sort of holding the line over conventional views that again are kind of overturning things? I would go to say that it's more of an aberration. I think that we don't see the likes of Donald Trump again in terms of doubting election results. That hasn't been the case for many, many years, maybe 100 years, where we really doubted elections. But I think that that's going to kind of fade away in that they realize it's not a good case. It makes you look like a sore loser. It doesn't really create a good effects, especially if Republicans lose this Georgia Senate runoff because they've said that the votes are fake and it's a cheated system. Well, if the Democrats take over the Senate because Republicans feel that or are saying that the votes were fraudulent, I don't think they do it again. I think they think, wow, this really lost us the presidential election and it lost us the Senate. And therefore, Joe Biden was able to push through whatever laws he wanted for two to four to eight years. Um, I think they don't go here again. Maybe. But do you think, hey, for some elites, they can get on TV, they can write newspaper articles, they can try to just promote this idea that maybe will never go away. And I just kind of keep wondering if, you know, this idea of elites without jobs, maybe there's something to it that that is what sort of leads to this boom and bust cycle that's just going to be really hard to get everybody to to kind of get on board with. And um, it's an interesting prediction that he's made and stuff like that. I think the look of all that goes down poorly in that it goes down as Rudy Giuliani with brown hair dye running down his cheeks, standing in front of a Philadelphia landscaping company, spouting gibberish. That's the picture that people take away from that. And they think, nah, that's that's not going to be me. I I don't want this to be my legacy. And that's a good point, because the one thing I think elites don't want is to be made fun of and to not be taken seriously. And at some point, you do have to be working towards a serious issue in order to be taken seriously, I guess, right? Yeah, I was listening to Bill Simmons' podcast and he had Barack Obama on it. And they asked him if if he would ever do one of these celebrity golf things. You know, it was Phil Mickelson and, and Tom Brady versus Tiger and Peyton Manning. And that was the first one. They've done a couple since then. They said, Bill Simmons asked Barack Obama if he'd ever do that. And he said, No, I don't want to do that because the first time I have to chip it three times to get out of the sand trap, then we're going to look real bad. And I don't want that to be my legacy. I don't want people remembering that. 
that's probably a, a good argument by uh, Mr. Obama there. I just have a couple more questions for you. But the first thing I wanted to think is, okay, so this is this guy's prediction that we haven't produced enough elites. The standard of living is going to go down for too many Americans. Finally, we can't pay our bills. And we've talked about debt and modern monetary theory on other podcasts. And so it seems like his big argument, though, all three of those are kind of connected together. And I guess I wanted to ask you, do you agree with all of this or do you think America is going to be fine or do you have a different theory as to what brings about the end of America? I think we're going to be fine. I have faith in our country. I think that we have a lot of debt, but Japan has more. We'll figure our way out of this. There's so much tied up in privilege in our society and wealth that has resulted in a great place to live. I just don't see that going away. And I don't see people really rising up to burn the whole system down, especially the people that are enfranchised that have gotten, done so well in the system. Even if they can't find a spot to do it, they are do, still pretty well off. And that's a good point. I like the idea where you say the elites in general have the most to lose if America declines. And therefore, it seems like, would you really want to have that much infighting at the top? And obviously, you know, somehow that will all equal out. I just kind of go with, the books 1984 versus Brave New World, both of them were written almost 100 years ago now, but both were making predictions about the future of the world. And 1984, of course, has this dark totalitarian government that's watching everybody through computers and, and controlling how everybody's going to live their lives. But the Brave New World argument to me is much more interesting. And I almost wonder if it's the one that we're already living where you have the elites at the top of society, and basically they're pushing drugs and happiness pills on everybody else in society just so that they can be happy and, and be content. And everybody's just sort of kind of so high on life that nobody's really even taken a moment to notice that they really don't have a lot of control over their lives. And I just wonder if, hey, with the rise of Netflix and with the rise of cheap entertainment, is it possible that America's already just kind of too happy to care about whether or not we have enough jobs for our leads? I think that's exactly the case. And although we're hearing whining and upsetness from people, I'm just thinking we're moving on. Hey, you got it pretty good. That's true. I think uh, that to me will be the thing I want to watch over the next 20 years is sort of the rise of entertainment. It just seems like it's harder and harder to get people to focus their attention on a lot of these issues. And I do think that's also something to kind of report on is more and more people just say, ah, well, somebody else will do that, right? And yet it does take a whole country to kind of make decisions or come to some sort of general consensus. I just wonder if there'll be enough people watching those that are that are in charge. Yeah, I hope they are. But at this point, we're just amusing ourselves. That's true. And that goes back to that book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which again, we'll have to talk about another podcast. I wanted just to bring up one final thing. And this was in Vox.com. And once again, this comes from a mathematician historian who said, look, in 760 years, humanity will die out. That was the headline, kind of clickbait. I want to just read you this paragraph and just kind of get your opinion here. He wrote, demographers have estimated the total number of people who ever lived at about 100 billion. That means that about 100 billion people were born before me. Currently, about 130 million people are born each year. At that rate, it would only take about 760 years for another 100 billion more people to be born. That's the basis of the claim that there's a 50% chance that humans will become extinct within the next 760 years. The flip side of the claim is that there's also a 50% chance we'll survive past 760 
to 60 years, possibly long past that. And Don, the whole point was, if you believe that there will be less humans born going into the future than in the past, then mathematically speaking, there's a 50% chance that in 760 years, we die out. What did you think about that? The math makes little sense to me. I'm not sure how you can predict that far out, and I don't think it matters. I'm not much interested in what happens more than, let's say, 100 years from now. <laughs> but Don, I mean, that's like your great, 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 great uh, children there. They, they might not be here anymore. I, I, too, barely get the math here. I think the whole point is there's a 50% chance this happens if just mathematically we have less people coming on the planet. And I guess you could say these are one of those like headline grabbing sort of clickbait articles that you're like, yes, I can't disprove what this guy has said, but at the same time, does it really matter? It doesn't matter. And it is clickbait and it doesn't matter because who cares? But then wouldn't you say that's what we just talked about today? Here's a guy saying that it's the end of America using math that we can barely understand, kind of a clickbait title. And ultimately, you know, should we just go be with our families, celebrate our loved ones and live for today? Well, try to value all the wonderful things we have. I mean, we live the dream in many senses. You and I are wealthy white people with families that are well taken care of, where our spouses have fulfilling jobs. We live in communities that are well organized with clean drinking water and working sewers and more things than we could possibly imagine. It's hard to value all these things because you're used to them. But I don't know. I feel like we all need to go camping for like three weeks because the greatest thing about going camping for a, a week is you come back and think, wow, my house is big. Oh, it's so nice to not share a toilet. Oh, this food is so easy to take care of. It's not in a cooler. We're not cooking it on a stove or a fire. I feel like we all need to take a break and come back and reappreciate all the things we have. That's a good point. Why do you think though, People are kind of obsessed with trying to predict the end of America or calling a top on American society and that we're now in decline. Because before this article, it's not like you can go more than a month or two if you're reading a newspaper or a magazine and not see another headline that says America is now in decline or this decision by the president clearly shows America is now in decline. And people have been saying this probably since the beginning of the republic. Why is everybody so obsessed with trying to, to get to the end? Right. It's like it's like we can't just enjoy being a great country. In a way, I don't get this, because if it is the beginning of the NBA season, as it is, and if I declare right now that I think the Miami Heat are going to win the championship and I put it down and then a year from now, I could say I was right or nine months from now, I could say I was right. And you could I could get praise. I could even make a bet on FanDuel who we should have sponsor ours and make lots of money and so forth. But there's nothing to be gained from declaring the end of America, because if it does happen within your lifetime, it's bad for you. And if it doesn't happen in your lifetime, then what's the point of making the claim? That said, the only thing that makes sense to me is people who don't value the way things are going because it doesn't match their political philosophy say the world is ending because we've elected this person and thus it's all over. Whether you felt that Barack Obama was the end of the world and declared that America was in recession or was falling apart because he was elected or Donald Trump, it is just a way to make the most dramatic point possible. I think our friends Chaz Sweat, Kevin Kopech would rather have DraftKings be the sponsor than uh, FanDuel. But I like your argument or analogy of the NBA 
And that think about it. We watch all these NBA games. We finally get an NBA champion and nobody really cares that like the Lakers won because everybody just wants to go talk about free agency and how the league's going to change next year. Right. There's always an obsession about the future. And I guess in a way, nobody really cares about America. We're all looking to like see when America falls so that we can figure out what the next uh, nation is going to be. Right. I'm going as a free agent to Denmark. That's where I want to go. Really? Denmark? Yeah, people are happy up there in uh, Scandinavia. It's the happiest place in the world based on the World Happiness Index. I like skiing. I like the winter. I've been there. It's sunny for like 18 hours in the summer. I got no problem with Denmark. It's kind of a monoculture, you know, and I don't know. Are you going to fit in there? And is that part of the happiness? I wonder if you might be part of the discontent, one of those elites that starts to swing things the other way for them. I won't look as tall. I think they're tall up there. I'm very tall and I'll fit in. I had a good time there. I think I have no problem there. I think I'm just going to head to either New Zealand, which is beautiful. I went there many years ago. But I remember I went to Costa Rica about 10 years ago. Lots of real estate signs. You can get some good property on the ocean for a pretty good price. And apparently, if you're willing to go to Nicaragua, you can get a really good deal. My wife's cousin's in uh, Central American real estate, and he can get you, hook you up so you can move there. However, in Mexico, they won't let Americans buy the waterfront property. You have to be a Mexican citizen to get the waterfront property. All right. So Mexico's out. Otherwise, I think I'll just double down. And I think I'm just going to stay in Michigan, Don. I'm going to try to make it work here. I don't see the end of society anytime soon. And uh, I'm just going to hope the Great Lake water levels just kind of recede. And uh, hopefully we can get a couple good more years here. Hey, we're still well above the lake levels. We'll be okay. Fair enough. Well, Don, uh, we'll have to see if America falls. If it does, I guess this podcast won't be happening anymore. But until then, hopefully we can talk next week. Hey, I think we can Zoom podcast from wherever we are. I urge you to consider Belize, though. I was a big fan of Belize. You should check that out. That's a non-extradition country. So uh, I guess if I was Ooh. one of those elite that really did some bad things, I could go there to hide, right? Yes, cheap waterfront property. They speak English. San Pedro, I would check it out. All right, fair enough. Well, have a good rest of your week, and we'll hopefully talk to you again uh, next week. Okay, bye-bye. Take care, Don.